One day, a group of scientists got together and decided that man had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell God that they were finished with him. The scientist walked up and said, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people and do many miraculous things, so why don't you get lost? God listened very patiently and kindly. And then he replied, very well, let's have a man-making contest. The scientist replied, okay, great. But God added, now we're going to do this just like I did with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem. Then he bent down and grabbed a handful of dirt. God said, no, 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 get your own dirt. Last week, we took a look at the big picture account of the creation story. Today, as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, we're going to zoom in on the creation of man and woman. As we look at this passage, let us remember that the purpose of this text is not to provide us with a scientific, detailed account of man's first days on earth. Right? Moses wrote to write, uh, to answer existential questions and to give us a true account of what happened over and against the creation myths that the Jews and even us, even we, are familiar with. This in no way means that Genesis 1 and 2 is made up. Uh, we believe that it is a true account that we can take literally. In fact, there's nothing proven in science that would prevent us from taking Genesis 1 and 2 literally. If you want to know more about that, meet me after church and I can point you to some more resources. Uh, but as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, uh, again, it doesn't answer every question that we may have. Uh, it's like the highlights, right? We get the highlights of what God deemed was important, what we need to know. But if we were to get a very detailed account, right, how much time would that take? Uh, we don't need to know every detail. We need to know what is important. And we can be assured that God has revealed to us everything that we need to know. And so as we look at the creation of the first man and woman, Moses is going to dive deeper into answering the question, why was man created? Right? When we get to chapter 3, he's going to provide the answer for, well, how did we get to this point? How did the situation become like this? But today we're going to look at why was man created? And the main point of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25 is this. Man has been given life by God to serve him in relationship with others. Right? Man has been given life by God to serve him in relationship with others. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, our first point is this. God alone gives life to man. God alone gives life to man. And so Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 opens with this phrase. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And so the book of Genesis can be divided into 11 major sections, right? The first section is chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, where we see in the beginning. But every other division starts with this phrase that the ESV translates, these are the generations of. And so the focus of these accounts is not the person named, but actually their offspring, right? So if you look, for example, uh, in Genesis 11, we see this phrase, the generations of Terah. Uh, but if you're familiar, Terah is the father of Abraham. But how much do we actually read about Terah? Not very much. Most of the story about Terah is really about Abraham. And we see the phrase, the generations of Isaac. But the story focuses on Jacob. And when we see the generations of Jacob, the focus is on Joseph. And so this is basically saying this is what happened to this man's family. This is what happened to his offspring. And so the major figures in Genesis are Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And so Genesis focuses on these five people. Now as we look at this passage, it's important to note that this isn't a separate creation account. It's not a second account which should be taken as a more detailed account of creation of man in Genesis 1. And I'm saying this because if you are in the secular world and uh, you're studying under professors and they're supposed to be very educated, they're going to say, hey, look, the, the author of Genesis, we don't know who it is, they don't believe it's Moses, there was these multiple creation accounts floating around and they couldn't decide which one to choose. 
And so what they do? They just stuck both of them in there and said, okay, maybe uh, we'll just let people figure it out. Uh, but that doesn't pay attention to the actual careful structure of Genesis. Right? Remember I said that 11 times we see that phrase, these are the generations of. And chapter 2, verse 4 starts with that phrase. Uh, and so Moses is very carefully putting together this account. It's not just randomly and, hey, I don't know what to do and uh, I can't decide is A better or B better, so I'll just put both there. Right? He's telling us the story in a very structured way. He has a point that he's trying to make with every passage. This is no accident. And so as we look at the generations of the heavens and the earth, right? he's telling us the story of what the world was like when it was first created. This is the title to that section. And so uh, before we continue further uh, into the verse 5, look at how he titles God. We get a new name here. It says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. If you remember in Genesis 1, verse 1, I said, in the beginning God created, and the word used there was Elohim. And now we see Lord God, and if you remember uh, our very short series in Obadiah, right, one, one week, we saw that the word Lord, when in capitals in the Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, uh, stands for the word Yahweh, right? And the Hebrew word Yahweh is the personal name that God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. It means I am who I am, right? And so now think about that. Historically, we know that God didn't reveal himself by that name until he did so to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And so now why is Moses, when he's reflecting on the creation of man, bringing the use of God's personal name? Well, he's trying to stress something. And this is what he's trying to stress. Elohim focuses on God's power, his transcendence, how majestic he is. But Yahweh is the personal name of God, right? It's how God explained himself to Moses. And when we see the word Yahweh, it's emphasizing that personal relationship that we can have with God, right? So what is he doing here? He's bringing together this transcendent God with this personal God, right? The imminent God. And so God is powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth and to set this whole universe in motion, to sustain it. But he's personal enough to be in relationship with you and I. And so when he talks about the creation of man, right, he uses this phrase uh, 20 times in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. He uses it just one other time in the other books that he wrote. And so he's trying to emphasize the power of God in the personal God as he talks about the creation of man. And so what is the world like as God made man? We see in verses 5 through 7. Read with me. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Right, so this is where it gets tricky. Right? In Genesis 1, we saw that vegetation came on day 3, and man was created when? Day 6. Right? And so is this a contradictory account to what we saw in Genesis 1? Right, here it seems like the reverse. Uh, there was no vegetation before man was created. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. There's a few ways that we could actually understand this passage that would not be contradictory to chapter 1. First, many scholars argue that Moses wants us to remember what the world was like uh, prior to creation began. So he's going all the way back to verse 1 when the, the world was, or the earth was formless and void, and there was a mist covering, and then he fast forwards to the creation of man, right? He's skipping past uh, day 1, 2, and 3, because what's his focus? 
the creation of man. Other scholars argue that Moses is contrasting the land now with how it was prior to the fall. And so if you look at verse 5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And so that word bush is actually a different word than what we see in day 3. Uh, and so if you know or if you're familiar with Genesis, right, the curse comes and thorns and thistles uh, spike up from the ground. And so this word bush, most scholars believe, refers to, if you're familiar with the, the landscape of Israel, it's a very dry, arid land. And so you get these wild plants that spring up that are not good to eat. They're wild, whereas the plants uh, are food that you can eat, that you can cultivate, right? So if you're a farmer, uh, you plant and you harvest things and you try and propagate the growth of that which is good, that which is wild, right? The thorns and the thistles, you don't really do it. You try and get rid of. And so some argue that this is a prelude to what is going to happen in the fall, right? So this is what it was like then, and it's a contrast to the world that they might know it, right? And so, but either one of these uh, are good interpretations for how we can make sense of chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? And so they're not necessarily contradictory. Again, remember, we're getting the highlights. We're not getting the play-by-play. -play. And so he's setting it up for us to focus on what is important. And so what is important? In this passage, it's verse 7, right? In Genesis 1, verse 26, we read that, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, it would be easy for us to become quite puffed up after reading this verse. Right? After all, we're created in the image of God. Maybe we get to be like God himself. We are like many gods. Uh, but lest we get too puffed up, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, brings us back down to a sobering reality. Right? There's a word play that we miss here in English. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama, and the Hebrew word for man is Adam. So if we were to give a very literal translation, we could say, out of the earth, God created, from the dust of the earth, dust of the earth, God created an earthling, right? What is the essence of man? What is the substance from which God created us? It's dust, right? That's why Job says, from dust we came, dust we shall return. Church, never forget that. The essence of God is God. He is spirit. There is none like him. He is the uncreated being. We are dirt. We're formed from the dust of the ground. Think, I mean, that's, that's humbling, right? We're created out of the stuff that we don't want in our house, uh, that we sweep out, that we get rid of. God took the dust of the ground and he formed us. And so that word formed is the same word used in Jeremiah when it talks about the potter forming a clay. Uh, it's showing that God put a personal touch, right? He doesn't form the rest of creation, right? He, he speaks and the animals come. But when it comes to humanity, God is he's personalized. He's involved in shaping us. The word forming is an artistic word. It's an inventive activity. It's something that requires skill and planning. And so God was very intentional in how he formed us. And so God forms us, he shapes us, he fashions us out of the dust of the ground. And then it says that he breathed his breath into us. Right? Though we are not one in essence with God, we are significantly different from the rest of creation. There's no other created being that man, that God breathes into besides man. And the Hebrew word used for breath here is a very unique word. It's the word nishma. Uh, normally, breath or wind or spirit is ruha. Right? That's the word that we saw in Genesis 1.1. The ruha was hovering over the earth. The spirit of God was hovering over the earth. But the word nishma is used only in relationship between God and man. Only man has the nishma, the breath of God. When speaking of this word in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, one commentator writes this, this is the inner spiritual part of human life that constitutes humans as spiritual beings with moral and intellectual and spiritual capabilities. Right? What is it that makes us unique over all of the rest of creation? We alone have a spiritual capacity, a spiritual ability 
to relate to God. Right? We alone have moral awareness. We alone have a conscience. Right? God uniquely created us. He gave us his very own breath so that we may experience relationship with him. And so do you understand what this means? The Bible is clear. God is the source of our life. Right? We don't just live as humans on earth, but as spiritual creatures, as spiritual beings who are made to relate on a spiritual level to our creator. I love this quote by Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton. He says, man and man alone is the recipient of divine breath. Now divinely formed and inspired, he is truly a living person. Until God breathes into him, man is a lifeless corpse. Right? When you think about that, man breathing into a lifeless corpse. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, where does your mind jump? Right? Ezekiel chapter 37. The valley of the dry bones. The bones are just there. They're dry. They're dead. They're lifeless. And God breathes and what happens? Life comes to them. Look at John chapter 20 verses 19 through 23. Let's turn to John chapter 20. We see a fulfillment of Ezekiel here. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And listen to this. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What is that? Jesus breathed on them. The Holy Spirit came among them. Think about John chapter 3, right, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's saying, you must be born again of the Holy Spirit. And he says, what is the Spirit? And he says, it's like the wind, right? You feel the wind, but you don't see it. You know that it's present. And he likens that to being born again, right? And so when we're born again, what happens? The Spirit of God comes upon us, right? Do you understand what this means, the obvious implication here is if you are not connected to God, if God has not breathed into you, you're not really alive, right? And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian or maybe you think you're a Christian because you grew up in church and your parents wrote Christian on your birth certificate, this is the message that the Bible has for you, right? If you are separated from God, the source of life, you are dead. Right? Physically, you may be alive and you say, I'm, am I really dead? I can move. But spiritually, you're a corpse. You're a bunch of dry bones. God alone is the source of life that energizes and animates humanity. Right? It's only in Christ that we can truly be alive and live as we're supposed to. And so that's what the gospel does. The gospel tells us that because of our sin, we are dead. We're spiritually dead. We're disconnected from God. We deserve his judgment, his eternal punishment. But because God loves us, he sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to live on the earth a perfect life and to die on the cross and rise again so that all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins and receives eternal life. How? Through being born again by the Spirit. We receive the breath of God which fully animates us and allows us to fully, truly live as we were meant to live. So it's only after the Lord God, the personal transcendent God, breathes life into man that man becomes a living creature. Now that's the first point we see here. To be truly alive, to have life as God meant for us to have, we must receive his breath. Point number two we see in verses 8 through 17. Man was created to enjoy God's abundant provision as he serves and obeys God. Man was created to enjoy God's abundant provision as he serves and obeys God. After God creates man, Moses moves to how God beautifully provides for him. And here we're introduced to Eden. We commonly think of Eden 
as actually the whole garden, right? We think of Garden Eden, but it's not. Eden is a place, and look at verse 8, right? If you read it carefully, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is not the garden, right? Eden is a place, and within that place, there is a garden that God planted. Now, this also means that the whole earth is not Eden, right? Sometimes people think, oh, prior to the fall, the earth was perfect, it was all paradise. But we see within the earth, there's a special place that God created. And this place was perfect. Right? Within this garden in Eden, the Lord God, the personal transcendent God, made every tree produce fruit that is pleasant to look at and good to eat. Right? I remember Arun doing a science experiment for school, and he took all these different foods, and then he brought them to me, but he changed the color of all the foods. So he said, Dad, you want to eat some eggs? And they were blue. And I looked at the eggs, I said, I don't want to eat blue eggs, right? God created us in such a way that our bodies actually protect us from eating food that will harm us, right? When we see spoiled food, we gag. That's God saying, hey, I want to preserve your life. It is not pleasant to eat. Don't eat it, right? And so these trees are highlighted. They were good for us to look at, meaning they were going to provide life for us. They were good nutritionally. We eat it. And he highlights two trees. And the Bible doesn't go on to say much about either of these, but let's look at them. First is the tree of life. And we see this tree again in Genesis 3. After the fall, God drives man out of the garden to prevent him from eating the tree of life. And the reason he does that is he does not want us to live in our fallen state forever. And so he says they can't eat of this tree, otherwise they'll be stuck with sin. And so when do we see this tree again? Right? Revelation chapter 2, those who overcome, Jesus will grant to eat of the tree of life. And then Genesis 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, this tree of life is there by the river for all to come and eat so that we may live eternally with God in fellowship with him without sin. Second is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We see it again in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. Or sorry, verse 15 of this uh, passage chapter 2 and again one more time in chapter 3 and that's it the tree never shows up again uh, and so we're going to talk more about this tree uh, next time in Genesis 3 but for the sake of time we're going to press on all right verses 10 through 14 we get a beautiful description of the garden we see that a river originated in Eden that flowed into the garden and then in the garden this river divides into four different rivers and we give the names Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, Euphrates and so I'm going to be honest, we can't actually know the precise location of the garden because two of the rivers don't exist. We don't actually know where Pihon and Gihon are. Uh, and then rivers also change their paths over time, right? Sometimes they dry up. Now the Tigris and the Euphrates run through Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq. Uh, and so some say the Persian Gulf uh, is where the Garden of Eden might have been. Uh, others look at Armenia, where the Tigris and Euphrates also uh, meet. Uh, and they say this is a likely location. All we really know that is east of Eden. Uh, sorry, Eden is east of where the Israelites were. And so where were the Israelites when Moses was writing? They were in Sinai, wandering the wilderness, right? So it's somewhere east of that. And again, we don't really need to know the location. Nothing is gained spiritually uh, by us for knowing uh, if we know that location. But what we see in the verses as that the garden would have been the perfect environment for man. Right? It's filled with every natural resource, things like gold, right? that uh, man used onyx stone, which man would later use in the temple and the priestly garments. Uh, it was a fertile land, right? If you have four rivers coming from this land, uh, you'd have the best farmland. And there's nothing more that man could have ever wanted. And remember, the Israelites are first hearing about this wind wandering around in the desert where they're eating manna. There is no food. Nothing is pleasing to look at. All they see are, you know, cactuses and these ugly plants and very unfertile ground. In fact, when they get to Israel, if you're familiar with Israel's land, it's not very fertile. Right? In fact, today, the Israelites are some of the leaders in irrigation technology. Why do they need to have this technology? Because the land itself is not very good, right? So they were forced to figure out how do we make this land fertile. And so when you're in the midst of, you know, this terrible land and you're presented with this stark contrast, again, how did we get this way? The fall. 
right? It's a result of the fall. But what the garden is here is it's an archetype of the sanctuary. The garden was God's cosmic temple. He put Adam and Eve in that temple, right, to serve him. And so it's a prefigure of what happens in the tabernacle and the temple. It's a glimpse of what comes in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is worth studying further. Again, if you're interested, come see me afterwards. We don't have time to get into all of that again. But the important thing is that the Lord God takes man, right, and he puts them in this garden, this wonderful garden. He creates him. He gives him life. He breathes into him, and he provides everything he needs. Can man be more blessed than he is? All right? He places him in the garden, and he gives him a purpose. He says, I want you to work it, to cultivate it, and keep it. And so understand this, work is not a result of the fall. We were created to work. God created us with the purpose to work, to serve him. Now, it doesn't mean that each of us needs to have, you know, a job, but all of us, right, ought to work. We ought to be productive. We ought to produce and create that which is beneficial and beautiful. Work is a good thing. What made work bad was the fall. Then our work became toilsome and tiresome and burdensome and labor. But if you picture the millennial kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth as this giant vacation where you're going to be by the beach uh, sipping on, you know, your favorite drink, just relaxing, uh, you're sorely mistaken. Look at all of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, right? What does it imply? If you who are faithful with the little will be given much, what's he talking about? Responsibility. If we serve God faithfully here, we're not given an extra good vacation in heaven. We're given more responsibility. You're going to be the ruler of ten cities, right? And so we are meant to work. God made us to rule with him, and ruling is a responsibility. That's what we have to look forward to. But the benefit is we don't have to toil. We don't have to labor at it. The work will truly be a blessing to us. And then in verse 16, we get the first command in the Bible. But I want you to, to hone in on this. Before the prohibition, we see God's abundant provision. Right? Provision comes first, then prohibition. It says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Isn't that just incredible? Right? It's not, hey, here's this one tree that you can eat at. But you see all of this, and you see how pleasing it is to the eye. Every tree that's there you can take of. Man has been given incredible freedom. He says, but there's one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Right? So every tree you can eat of, but this one, don't do it. God provides abundantly, and he prohibits sparingly. And why does he prohibit? We're going to see that it's for our good. Right, if you've been coming to our Wednesday night Bible study, you know that the word for, whenever we see it, provides an explanation. Why is it that God has prohibited man from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because it brings forth death. Right, church, God's commands are not arbitrary. He's just not making them up as a test to see if we'll be obedient or not. His commands are life-giving. Right? He's given them to us for our good, that if we follow them, we will be blessed because he's the one who designed the earth. He designed us. He knows what's best for us. Now, this is like when our children or when we were kids, we asked, can I do X? And parents say, no, you can't do X. If you do that, you're going to get hurt. Right? You can't jump off uh, you know, the, the house. You're going to fall and break your arm. And what do kids say? Oh, my parents won't let me do anything. Right? Oh, they're so mean. They have all these rules. They don't love me. Oh, they don't trust me. Well, really? Are they providing for you? Are they meeting your physical needs? Are they putting food on the table? Are they giving you shelter? Are they clothing you? Have they locked you up in a room and said, you can't do anything, just sit in this room and stare at the wall? Right? You tell, you know, this happens in my house all the time. Kids say, hey, can I... Can I watch TV? Say no. Well, what can I do? I just told you one thing you can't do. You can do a million of other things, right? Play with your toys, go outside, read a book. There's X amount of things you can do, but what do they focus on? The one thing they can't do. 
Right? If you really think about it, parents have given children freedom to do any number of things, but the focus is always on what we can't do. And as adults, are we actually any better? Right? That which God forbids, is it not often the very thing that we want? But whatever God forbids, he does so because it brings death. Right? What is sin? It's disobedience to God. It's saying, God, I know what you've said. I know you've said this brings forth death, but I don't really believe you. I think it's life-giving. And so I'm going to do it anyhow because it's going to fill me with joy and satisfaction. And so we indulge in lying, drunkenness, drugs. We throw ourselves into work, school, or even relationships, sex, pornography, we close ourselves off from people. We pursue money and power. We do all of this because we think it will give us life. But ultimately, it brings us death. Right? Life is found in what God has provided for us. Death is found in what God has prohibited. It's prohibited because God knows it will bring about death. Right? Do you understand that? Why does God prohibit it? It's not, it doesn't bring about death because God prohibits it. Right? It brings about death, and so God says, don't do it. Right? He knows that ultimately these things will lead us away from him, and life is found where? Only in him. Right? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Luke 9, 23 through 25, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Where do we find life and find it abundantly? It's not in living the way that we want. It's not in doing what we think is good, what we think is life-giving. It's in denying ourselves and being obedient to Christ and serving him and following his commands. Then and only then will we experience life as fully as we are meant to fulfill it. Now, one thing is still missing for man. Right? In verse 18, for the first time, we see God say, it is not good. And what is it that is not good? It says that man should be alone. So what does God do? God provides man with a helper to fulfill his purpose. And we see this in verses 18 through 25. Right? God provides man with a helper to fulfill his purpose. It's not good that man should be alone. So what does God do? He acts. He again provides for man. And so if man is going to fulfill his purpose, he can't do it alone. He needs help. Go back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, right? The command is to fill the earth. Uh, can you do that by yourself? All right? But I think it goes beyond that. If man is going to be faithful to, uh, to do his work, right, to keep the garden, to cultivate, he needs a helper. Now, the word helper doesn't in any way imply weakness. In fact, later, God is said to be man's helper. Uh, so would we ever dream of saying that God is weaker than us? Right? God is stronger than us. And so when we see this word, word, helper, we shouldn't think that it implies that woman is somehow less than man. Right? In our culture, in our society, when you say you have a helper, uh, it's usually somebody at home who... As maybe not as skilled and does the work that you don't want to do, right? They're the helper. That is not the helper that we have in mind here. It also says that the helper is fit for man. And so the word fit has the idea of corresponding to. It literally means like opposite him. Right? So the helper is equal to man, but at the same time, he is not like man. This is where we get the idea of a woman complimenting man and a man complimenting woman. The areas where one is weak, the other is strong and vice versa. And so here's some broad generalizations to illustrate this point. And so I didn't come up with them. Uh, they're from the Relationship Institute, which is a secular counseling, marital, uh, marital counseling organization, right? So the secular world recognizes this, right? So here's some generalizations. Men are generally physically stronger more logical, analytical, and rational. 
Women are generally physically weaker, more intuitive, holistic, creative, and integrative. Integrative. Can't say the word. Uh, and so again, uh, that's a broad generalization. Does that mean every man is stronger than every woman or every man is uh, more rational than every woman? No. Uh, but broadly, a man and woman right, have been created differently. And if you were to ask any married couple, I'm sure they could tell you specific ways that they complement each other. In fact, marriages and relationships thrive when we learn how to complement each other, right? When we take those differences and we stop fighting about them, but we utilize them into strength. We harness our differences in order to serve God, right? And of course, that's not even to mention the physical differences that are necessary if men and women are going to procreate, right? To fill the earth. And so before providing man with a helper, the Lord God wants man to realize his own need for companionship. And so what does he do? He gives him a task. He says, I'm going to take all the animals and I'm going to walk them before you and you're going to name them. And so God is also giving man an opportunity here to exercise his dominion, to rule, to show his authority, right? Naming means you have authority over someone. And so think about this. All the animals come and they come probably male and female before them and he names them. He says, okay, that's a cow and that's an alligator and that's an elephant. I don't know what the animals were, but right. And he sees that there's two of each kind and he looks at them and said, they look like each other, but none of them look like me. Right. And so Adam says, again, none of them are fit for me. Right. Look at what he says. Uh, I lost my place. Uh, in verse 20. Right? The man gave names to livestock and birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I'm saying nobody is like me. Nobody corresponds to me. Nobody can give me compassion. Not compassion, companionship. Right? Then the Lord God intervenes. Right? After Adam comes to this realization that nobody is like him, he puts him into a deep sleep so that God can provide the first surgery. Now, ESV says that uh, the woman is taken from Adam's rib. The Hebrew word is more general. It just means side, although it can be used for rib. And this is what the famed Puritan Matthew Henry says. He says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved, right? Men and women are equal, but they are distinct. And so uh, Paul is later going to appeal to this account uh, to provide the basis of two different teachings regarding man and woman, right? In 1 Corinthians 7, he states that because the woman was made from man, man has the authority over woman. So this establishes along with Ephesians 5, male headship of the family. First Timothy 2, Paul says that he grounds his argument for why women should not teach in the church to man being created first. And that's why as a church, we practice or we limit public teaching uh, to men only, right? An effort. But Paul grounds us all the way back to the beginning of creation. So church, there's two errors here that I think we need to protect against, right? First, this teaching is not allowing for men to beat their wives into submission. Right? I remember uh, Dr. Joy telling me a story, him and Lee Lanti telling me a story. Of this man comes home. He's a Christian. Right? He says he's a Christian. He comes home at 2 in the morning or something. He wakes up his pregnant wife and says, we need to pray. And the wife says, I'm really sleepy. I need to sleep. And so what does he do? He beats her right? and says, no, we need to pray. Right? And so we live in a culture and society where Many times, men beat their wives in order to submit to them. Is that okay? No. Think back to Ephesians 5, right? It's the responsibility of the woman to submit to her husband. It's the responsibility of the man to lead her husband. How? By exemplifying the sacrificial love of Christ. What is the model of leadership for men? It's Jesus' love for the church. I don't imagine Jesus waking up a pregnant woman at two in the morning and beating her for not praying, right? We are to love sacrificially. But second, 
And this is something that also happens in the church. Women should not be demeaned from staying at home. I was talking to Brother Lakshman uh, last week, and he was telling me that one of his friends, uh, um, the wife stays at home, and everybody in the church gets mad and says, why aren't you working? Right? Why don't you go to work? Why are you staying at home? Right? And so both heirs today need to be protected again. One, right, men, we're not allowed to beat our spouses to get them to do what we want. Right? The woman's call is to submit. Ours is to love them sacrificially. But two, we live in a world that is also trying to deny any kind of distinction and say, hey, everybody is completely equal, and therefore there's no such thing as any kind of roles or limits. And so we need to make space and say, hey, it is a positive thing if a woman wants to stay home and focus on the children to raise them. Uh, do all women have to stay at home? Uh, no, but women are naturally more geared to nurturing children. And so if that's what a woman wants to do, we should encourage it, promote it. We can't get mad and say, hey, why aren't you out there working? Right? We've been created with different roles and responsibilities and what that looks like in each home may differ, uh, but we need to create space where women are protected and the freedoms that they want to have in the family are also protected. Right? We can't judge other people uh, by the world's standards. We have to live according to what the Bible says. Right? And so from the man, he makes woman and he brings her to man. And so the idea here is the first wedding. Right? God is presenting the woman to man. In verse 23, the man speaks, and some scholars argue this is a marriage covenant. He says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Just like you have Adama and Adam, the Hebrew word for man here is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. And so it could be more appropriately translated husband and wife. Right? And so man names her. We see again that man has an authority over the wife. Uh, but this is a covenant, bone of bones, flesh of flesh is the Hebrew equivalent to saying my blood. Right? And so you know, when we really are trying to say we're close to somebody, we say, oh, we, he's like my blood. We share the same blood. So he's saying, she is a part of me. I am committed to her. I have covenanted with her. And in verse 24, we see the foundation of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so we see three things. First, primary relationship is husband and wife. Right? Uh, much like our culture, the Jewish culture was patriarchal. So it doesn't mean that the husband actually left the home of his parents. They would have stayed in the home. And so that's not what he's talking about. You don't actually have to physically leave the home of your father. What is he talking about? Priority and relationship. Who comes first, your father or your spouse? It's your spouse. That is the number one relationship. So uh, in terms of priority, it's husband and wife. And then you have your responsibility to your parents. Right? You cleave to them. And the second thing we see is that they're one flesh. That's speaking not just of physical intimacy, but all of intimacy. But Paul uses this one flesh concept to say that sexual relationships should be confined only to what? Marriage. Right? It's one flesh. It is intimacy. And so our deepest intimacy is to be with our spouse. Emotionally, physically, friendship, our spouse is to be the closest person that we have. And this oneness, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5, what prefigures Christ in the church. Just as Christ is one with the body of Christ, the church, we are to be one with our spouse. And so the clear teaching in the Bible is also that marriage is designed for one man and one woman. Right? We, again, live in a world where they're redefining marriage, and anybody uh, ought to be able to be married to anyone. The clear teaching of the Bible is there's only two genders. Right? There's male and there's female. You're the gender you're born with. Truth is objective. Right? Our feelings don't indicate what is true. Uh, our biology does. And so uh, if you were born with male parts, you are a man. If you're born with female parts, you are a woman. It, doesn't matter how you feel, right? I can feel like I want to be a butterfly. That doesn't make me a butterfly, right? I've been created a human. Uh, and so we see the ideal for marriage. One man is to be married to one woman in relationship. So heterosexual marriage is 
the marriage that has been ordained by God. We are not free to move on from this pattern. Again, I could say much more, but for the sake of time, let me wrap up. In verse 25, we get a glimpse of what life was like prior to the fall. We see that man and woman experience no shame. They can be naked in front of each other because they've done nothing to be ashamed about, right? There is no sin. And so this was what the perfect world looked like. Now let me pause and make some applications before we wrap up. First thing we see from this passage is pursue God. We were made to find life in him. And so pursue him with everything you have. Read the word. Spend time meditating on the word. Spend time in prayer with him. Do everything you can to be as closely as connected to God as possible because it's only as we pursue him that we will truly experience what it means to be human, what it means to have life. And so are you spending time in God's word? What is the way that God has revealed himself to us? It's through his word. And so if you want to know God, you have to be diligent in spending time in scripture. What is the means by which God has given us to communicate with him? It's prayer, right? And so as we read the word, we ought to be in conversation with God, pray back to him according to what you have read in scripture. Second, serve and obey the Lord. It's interesting, the words cultivate and keep, the task that God gave to Adam is actually going to be used in Deuteronomy and Numbers to speak of the work of the Levites and the priests. Right? So as I mentioned, the garden foreshadows the temple. Adam and Eve are like these king priests that were put in the garden to serve and to worship God. Right? How do we serve God today? You'll hear me say it over and over again. Making disciples. Evangelize. Who can you share the gospel with? Who can you reveal the God who has given you life to? Right? And then make disciples. Who can you equip? Who can you train to grow in their relationship with Christ? If you know the gospel, you can teach somebody else the gospel. There's always somebody that you can invest into. And so how are you investing in the church? How are you serving the Lord? How are you building up your fellow Christians? Right? That is the task of every Christian, to go out and to reveal this great God of the universe to the lost people around us. And to reveal the God of the universe to the saved people around us by pointing them back to scriptures and encouraging them to be more like Jesus. And then are you obeying God? As you read the scriptures, are you seeing areas in your life where you're withholding from obedience? And as God reveals to you those areas, are you repenting and saying, God, I'm going to obey you. Even though I... I want to do these things. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe your word that they indeed bring about death. And so I'm going to, in faith, obey you. What areas of your life is God calling you to obedience? And finally, pursue people. Live in community. Now notice I didn't say marriage. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that some people are called to be single. Right? So not everybody needs to be married. And I know in our culture that's a foreign thought. But we need to accept that. If somebody says, hey, I'm called to singleness, we should allow for that. Because if we're not, then we're saying, hey, Scripture is not actually right. Paul said it, God said it, but he can't be right. Everybody has to be married. Right? Some people are given the gift of singleness. And so what this also means is if we're going to give space for people to pursue singleness, we must give room for them to experience close relationships, right? Because recognize that relationship of marriage, the intimacy that comes with marriage, they will never have. But that doesn't mean they're meant to be ostracized and, you know, shut out of our community. We must be their family. Look at Paul. Paul lived a single life, but Paul seems to have a family wherever he goes. Uh, that means that people were willing to include him in their families, Right? And so, church, we are not meant to serve God alone. It's not just you and Jesus. Otherwise, God could have left Adam alone. Right? Look at the church, Ephesians, right? We went through that whole book. We see that we are put in the body of Christ. We can't be faithful to obey the commandments of God and to serve him alone. We're not meant to live alone. We're meant to live in relationship with other people and to serve God in relationship with other people. How do we know the areas that we need to grow in? If we were by ourselves, we would think we're perfect, right? 
It's as we relate to others and as others in grace and love show us that we're in sin, right? How do we fulfill the commands to obey one another, to build each other up? Through relationship. We need each other if we're going to be obedient to God, if we're going to serve him faithfully. I want to end by looking at Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 8. This is a psalm that I'm sure all of us are familiar with, but it so well captures what we see in Genesis 2. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet and all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Man was created by God to serve him in relationship with others. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that uh, out of just your love for us that you created us and you created us with a purpose of relating to you, to serve you. We're so grateful that uh, we can find true life and what it means to really be human in Christ. We're thankful that you have not left us alone in this world, but you have given us commands so that we can pursue life and that we can live it abundantly. And you've given us prohibitions because you know these things bring us death. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be obedient to you and to serve you and to live out our purpose. We're also grateful that you do not leave us alone in this world, that you recognize that we are built with the need to relate not only to you, but to others. And so we thank you for the gift of marriage where we can experience this wonderful intimacy. We thank you for the gift of the church where we're able to come into relationship with other people and to have a family that shares our values and that shares our burdens and is equally being shaped by Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to add to the church by evangelizing and to help our brothers and sisters in Christ to become conformed into the image of Christ by pursuing discipleship. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.